So Nels Klein, you were talking about going my, to my a brush bowl. with Al Cooper. Yeah. <laughs> Let's okay. hear it. I'll play it for so him. This is a, you know, I'm from Los Angeles. So this was a Los Angeles story. My friend, Brian Horner, uh, who I met at Occidental College when I was going there, who was a, a modular synthesizer wizard, had gotten a job after he graduated from Occidental working for Roland Corp, Roland mm. Corporation, which was quite an experience uh, for him and ended up being a tiny experience uh, for me, pretty bizarre. Right. Because uh, that's like early Roland. In yeah, America yeah. Roland was at that time, uh, of course, it's a Japanese company, but right. Roland U.S., was run by a guy named uh, Tom Beckman, I believe. Uh -huh. Tom Beckman was a guy who sold band instruments out of his car driving around the Midwest. He was basically <laughs> a traveling we're talking, salesman. Now we're talking the music man. And he was like the, the uh, archetype of the asshole CEO type guy. Right. My first and maybe only experience directly with that kind of human being. Yeah, but very few of those guys even had these days had any history of like driving, selling band instruments out of their car. Well, that's true. <laughs> he had paid some dues. You have to get, but he was such a jerk. But anyway, he was really mean to my friend Brian, who was a really brilliant guy and basically got out of music. But um, they had this seminar or whatever you call it coming up and it was going to be at the Troubadour in a late afternoon and people were actually going to pay to see Skunk Baxter demonstrate the Roland GR500 <laughs> guitar synthesizer and see Al no. Cooper demonstrate the vocoder, which oh, was oh, brand new what? at that point. It had just come out. Well, wait a minute, because the vocoder is earlier than that. I mean, that's on those. That's on that Stevie Wonder record. That's like one of the first, like 1970. So it must have been a different iteration of the vocoder. Okay, well, that's the only vocoder I'd ever heard. Okay, of. So, okay. So, I mean, there were things that talked right. before, and there was the talk, the Heil talk box. Got you. Which is what I always thought Zap used a right. vocoder, but it was the it was the talk okay, box. Okay, I'm wrong then. Okay. I'm wrong. And I have a Roger story for you, oh, too. Oh, super into Roger. But anyway, <laughs> um, so... Which ended, this be, ended up becoming a pattern, which is how I ended up working for Roland later, too. Skunk Baxter bailed at the last minute on this thing. My friend Brian called me up and he said, can you help and demonstrate the Roland GR500 guitar synthesizer? Drive out to Downey and, uh, and get the thing over the weekend, study up. Oh and uh, and play it. In the meantime, we have to find a celebrity, a music celebrity, to fill in for Skunk Baxter, so these people don't feel ripped off. Right. So they got Greg Lake, uh, oh, right, who was at, at that time sort of coming off the failure of the Emerson Lake and Palmer Love Beach album, which okay. had been a huge stiff. Just I, like I don't know about like, that. Oh, this, they look like stuffed people uh, with like tanned stuffed dummies oh. on the cover of that record. Um, <laughs> Really amazing failure. Because um, you imagine this is 79, the, the, the prog rock people had all been deposed oh, yeah. by, by oh, punk yeah. and so-called new wave. Right, right. So uh, I arrived in the afternoon and noticed that I was going to be playing through like four different amps, like two Roland jazz chorus amps and two bass amps or something and they asked me what pedals i wanted i said everything yeah you know, i said give me everything <laughs> i didn't have anything in those days i had a, i had i think i had a vinnie golia's tube echoplex and i had maybe a distortion pedal i mean i wasn't really yeah. an effects guy but that, that was a lot back then yeah yeah I mean. um 
so there was a space echo and all this stuff. And then there was uh, Al Cooper, who looked really in my in my memory just like Al Cooper, the way I imagined him, the hair kind of curly hair coming down, football jersey and mirrored aviators. Right, right. Um, people assembled and uh, it was complete chaos. Tom Beckman was there. and This is the, the thing, CEO guy. Right? Yeah. And the thing, like the lights went down and there, nobody did anything. <laughs> nobody did anything at all. So, and I was standing on stage. Uh, there was a keyboard player who I ended up playing with later at NAMM in Atlanta that year oh because God. Skunk Baxter bailed on right, that at the last right. minute, too. Oh, my God. So, uh, and he was the guy with the drum machine and the one-man band kind right, of guy. Right, But, uh, so he played while people were assembling and sitting down, but then when he stopped and the lights went down, nothing happened. So, absolutely, improv, I just... I welcomed everybody and <laughs> started talking <laughs> because I didn't know what else to do. It was so weird and embarrassing. I'm standing on stage in front of a microphone holding the GR500 guitar synthesizer. I love it. And, uh, and right as I'm about into my fourth sentence, this guy bounds on stage and says, Hello, everyone. Welcome to... Blah, and says everything I just said, but with a very animated announcer voice oh, and a suit, wearing a suit. Right. And he said, Tom Beckman is here. Tom, Tom from Roland U.S. is here. Tom, are you... No, he wasn't, he wasn't even in the room. Wow. So that was a little fun moment. People, heads turning and, you know, all that. And this so, is the troubadour in the middle of the day. It, well, it's right? like, yeah, it was like five in the afternoon. Right, or right, so, right. So then they turned it over to Al Cooper, and Al Cooper is going to demonstrate the vocoder. And this is my imitation sort of uh, reduc reduction of his uh -huh. presentation. He's so it's really cool. You can you can sound like a like a choir. <laughs> <laughs> understand like the words and you don't really have to sing because you're playing the notes you know and he does that i mean there was he was barely talking right right so people were getting really uncomfortable and i don't know if they knew yet that skunk baxter wasn't there and he was riding high at this point he was kind of like had just started doing session work in new york yeah, and of course the sure. Doobie brothers and right. all that stuff so then i did my demonstration of the guitar synthesizer, which was actually strangely fun. I had these little gimmicks. I figured out like what to do. Oh, uh, I'm sure and, you did. But did and, that uh, drive you crazy? Like, remember those? Those were the ones where you would hit this note, and it really felt like, to me, a century later, oh, the note latency. would come out. Yeah, it didn't seem that right? latent to me, but it depended on how you set it up. The best thing about it was that it had this polyphonic and monophonic and bass channel, which you could defeat. So my thing was to like periodically defeat the the polyphonic thing and hit a whole chord right and then just the top note would come out you know, it would be like an arpeggio and then fade in the chord <laughs> right, and then right. tap a bass note it would sounded like the whole building was going to explode wow. it was so big i'd never played through so much equipment in my life but so i did my little thing move. and i actually had this i figured out that if i played little arpeggios with a little portamento uh -huh. on the monophonic channel. I could do like Keith Emerson type <laughs> lyrics, you know, wee, 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 all this kind of stuff. 
So that was pretty fun. I had like phase shifting going and all this kind of stuff and delay. And then, uh, so I mean, I never met Al Cooper. I never, and then Greg Lake came out basically. Um, rather overweight would be the, the polite, <laughs> I guess, way to describe it. Wearing a, wearing a white or off-white polyester leisure suit. Nice. And he sat in the chair with the GR500 next to him because apparently he had used it on Love Beach. What is GR? Is uh, that that's the synthesizer? That's the guitar. That's the, okay, that he, gotcha. had, he had used it on Love Beach, supposedly. Um, and he smoked cigarettes and answered questions about his career, which people seemed excited to ask him. But then when they asked him to play a song, he demurred. He would not perform a song. Wow. Now, I figured he was at least going to play the GR500 guitar right. synthesizer as a right. guitar and play Lucky Man or something. But oh, no, he didn't <laughs> do anything. He didn't do anything. Wow. Yeah, it was really trip. weird. And then uh, and then I left and realized that my car had been towed. So that was the end of my day. Oh, that was it. That's a great story. You know, I went to a similar, but very dissimilar experience to that. Ultimately, when I was like maybe 20 or 22 years old living in Berkeley, um, I saw advertisements and the art ensemble was playing... Uh, at uh, like Zellerbach Hall, which was a very, you know, I couldn't afford to get in there, you know, but it says they were giving a free question and answer wow. session during the day. So I just showed up and um, <clears throat> I think it was like only Roscoe Mitchell came out. Oh, really? Only. And um, they had the whole everything set up and it was full of people. The, that huge hall, you know. Yeah, yeah. It was, I saw Anthony Braxton and there, actually. this poor guy, you know, of course, I didn't know this. Like, I mean, I, I had been a street musician. I had been touring around a lot, like, you know, doing the, the grind in Europe and all that. But, you know, I had no idea what it's like to really be on the road, you know. And these guys pr just got off an airplane from, at that point, who knows, probably like Berlin or, or so, you know, because they were riding high back then, you know. Yeah, so yeah. so he, and, and he's there, and the poor guy is just like, he's trying to do his best, just like, you know, the me now knows that he was thinking, please get me out of here. I need a nap. <laughs> I need something to eat and a shower, and then right. I'll be okay for the gig. But, you know, they scheduled this, like, noon thing for him. And I remember... Um, it was it was really embarrassing, not for him, but really for the people in the audience because they were they one of the, I remember one person got real bossy with him and started telling him to play play this play can you do this can you do that oh my god and he was really incredibly I just remember he was so um, elegant and how he addressed them he did not lose his cool you know it was kind of like he knew he had like a giant mad dog that he had to get past before he got to do his thing but he took out the dinner bells remember he he they had these dinner bells that they would collect all over the place and he played this incredible improvised like two minute thing on these dinner bells like five or six of them you know and i remember that specifically like the sound of it and then that was it and he just left the stage you know but it was really uncomfortable you know and and these people expected that he was there and he was supposed to entertain them somehow like two or three hundred people you know it's crazy. Not as good of a story as yours, but definitely one of those, well, like, I mean, in the daytime, what am I doing here as a musician, you know? When I ended up going to the NAM convention, because once again, Skunk Baxter bailed, this was, this might have been actually, the, the Troubadour thing may have been 78, actually. I think 79 was when I did the NAM convention, and that wasn't for the GR500 guitar synthesizer, that was for the Roland Rack, which were these 
three-quarter space rack things. The only thing that survived from that was the Dimension D, which a lot of studios still have. It's this kind of very subtle stereo chorus thing. Oh, okay. There's, there's three different intensities. You oh, know? okay. I don't know um, that. I don't know that. The rest of it was just complete crap. And, uh, and I was told, you know, do not play the GR500 guitar synthesizer because we're coming out with a simpler model. And, oh, okay. and we don't want anybody to think that we're just still hanging on to this thing. Right, right. And, uh, and once again, uh, Skunk Baxter actually did come just to sort of like, you know, I don't know what, grace us with his presence or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But he didn't know how to use any of the stuff. And the salesman had told me, like, he won't know how to use any of the equipment. He doesn't. Right. He had, I remember him playing on Saturday Night Live with the Doobie Brothers, and he had the GR500 right next to the module next to him. He's playing the guitar, and he's sitting on a big high stool, kind of like Whoa. like this, like Pete Cosey or something. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I've realized now, like, he probably just had it just straight guitar. It just was kind of for looks, you know? Right. Right, he was just but, doing uh, it to get his... Get his uh, that was a whole thing other... On. The NAMM wow. convention was a whole other education. Yeah. It's when they were just starting to have companies uh, with enclosed sovereign space oh okay instead of just an open like with tables right and, and right. display racks yeah and so we had our own tent and i had oh complete stereo set up and i was playing duo with this guy the same guy that was playing multi-keyboards and drum machine oh okay at the troubadour, who, whose name i don't recall and he was uh uh Obviously, the invention of the synthesizer and the drum machine were exactly what he was looking for in exactly. life because he could just be a man. That band. was his thing. Yeah, and he was an African American gentleman uh, with a kind of a corny streak. And here we were in Atlanta, and he realized that with the vocoder, if he did church music but with a disco beat, uh huh, that we were going to sell some. Some serious, serious vocoders. So he wow. would do Oh Happy Days. Oh, yeah. And with his, but he loved the clave on the TR-808. He loved the clave. So it's always <laughs> beep, 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 you know, poking me in the ear. That's excruciating. But I didn't know what to play on Oh Happy Days because he had it all together. So I basically, right. they had the GR500 guitar synthesizers sitting there, uh -huh. even though I was told not to play it. So I played it because I wanted to just play bass. Right. So I just played the bass boom, module. Boom, boom, but then he started playing Disco Inferno, and I decided... Well, he had that covered, so I just played the guitar synthesizer for the solo, for oh, the solo, okay. and I went nuts, basically, on the thing. And, uh, you know, they were always going to give me one because nobody was really... They weren't selling them anymore right, and whatever. Right. But when I started playing it, they... This, they sold all the rest that were left. Get out so of here. So I never got one. <laughs> I wow. don't really care now. Right, exactly. But at yeah. the time, I was so broke, and I remember I remember thinking, like, you know, instead of money, could you please give me a space echo? Right. And they would never right. do it. They would never right. give me a space echo. I said, can you just take the money out of my paycheck? No, it doesn't work that way. And all this yeah, stuff. Yeah, why? It was so weird. Why not is the question. I mean, how old was I then? Like 22 or yeah. something? Yeah. Oh, man, yeah. that's too much. Really young. That is too. But much. the other Al Cooper story isn't about Al Cooper. It's about when uh, Good, I was Keith, in this band, the Geraldine Fibbers. Yeah, when I was in the well, he doesn't need to hear this one. When I was in the Geraldine Fibbers, uh, I only recorded on their second album because I joined late when I, when their other guitarist left, and on an album called Butch. Uh -huh. The the title song Butch ended up being 
my my music, but arranged by the band. And there's a bridge section. Uh, the song's about a, a, an aging transvestite, basically, and uh, written lyrics brilliantly written by Carla Bozlich and, uh -huh. and uh, the lead singer and leader of the band. And we decided we're recording at Sunset Sound Factory. Uh, that on this bridge it would be great to have some Hammond organ, but there was no keyboard player in the band. Uh -huh. So it was just an, an A minor, uh, or E minor to A minor back and forth, something uh -huh. like that with a couple other chords at the end. So I decided, well, I'll, I'll give it a shot, you know. So knowing a little bit about the Al Cooper history uh -huh. with Bob, I basically like got myself in, the, in a cape, and, uh -huh. these, and I put on sunglasses, <laughs> and I put on all this stuff. I don't remember exactly. I you mean, got, I got in, in character. I got in some kind of, I became some kind of character, like like Al Cooper meets Fan of the Opera or something. Right, right. And I tracked this organ part, just trying to channel Al Cooper. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's awesome. It sounds pretty good. I'll tell him. I'll tell him. You know, for somebody who doesn't know how to play organ. Oh, but. that's funny. Yeah, I mean, he <laughs> told me a lot of stuff about this. He never, he always considered himself a guitar player. And um, he just happened to go to some session with uh, uh, Mike Bloomfield. Well, yeah, that's said, how I knew about him was Super Session. Super Session, right. Yeah, and he plays the Andioline, or however you say that, the keyboard on that. It's so great. It was my favorite part of that yeah. record. Yeah, no, he's, a, he's an interesting guy and a real interesting musician, How old too. is he now? Hi, he's got to be in his mid-60s. I mean, do you know that he wrote this Diamond Ring? No. That, yeah, that Gary Lewis and the Playboys wow. did this Diamond Ring. And he told me that he was really, really angry because he and his partner who wrote the song, I think the story goes like this, they were working, it wasn't the Brill Building, but it was a similar situation in New York. They were assured that it was going to be given to a really good, legit group at the time. Like, they th were thinking maybe Clyde... Uh, McFadder would do it oh, or a, a group of that kind in that kind of level and not like a kind of like a Bobby Soxer kind of band and uh, he was crushed when he heard it because he said it was so square but it was still know. a big hit huge hit and it's actually it's a really great song if you it's just like wow to, pure craft been pure a long craft. time well yeah I'm yeah sure. wow interesting yeah that's true but you you came up in LA in in the 70s and I mean well you were going to shows in the 70s when you were a teenager a, a little bit but I wasn't really aware I wasn't able to get to a lot of the stuff you know were you just, in Glendale or, or Pasadena oh, West LA like oh, right, okay. right, right between you know what now is Century City and Santa Monica like oh, right, okay. right in between sure and kind of a non-neighborhood right um, you know, south of Brentwood, north of Mar Vista. Got you, got you. Uh, um, I just did a session with Greg Cohen, who grew up in the Valley, San Fernando Valley, and he's the bass three player. Years, yeah, he's yeah. about three years older than me. He went. He and his brother went to every show that my brother and I wanted to go to. Oh. <laughs> he kept mentioning shows that he went to, and I was like, and then he, we started talking about Hendrix, and I said, well, the only two Hendrix shows I ever could have gone to. And I couldn't get to them were, were the L.A. Forum show and the right. Richard Downs yeah. show, which was the, where the LA, where the county ferries to be out in the valley. Right. So I went to both of those. You oh, know? wow. He saw Cream at the Forum. He saw all these shows. Everything you just kept mentioning show right. after show. Right, And then he used to hang out with Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band because they oh, would, right. I think, practice near him. Sure, they were they somehow right get there. to know him. Yeah. 
And so, I mean, he was just wow, blowing what a my history. Mind. I had no idea. He, so we just started getting into all this Southern California lore, you know. And, uh, and he loves to talk and tell jokes, so it didn't take any prompting. I mean, he just went off and right. just amazing stories. Oh, that's And speaking cool. of which, if you haven't read Reich Hooter's book, Los Angeles Stories, I no, really recommend uh, it. No, dude, I am the biggest Reich Hooter fan, I think. I mean, really. Have you when read I, this book? I have not, and it's I'm, I'm so going good. to. And I mean, I'm for me, yeah. it's very close to home because he meticulously uh, reconstructs that the, the 40s to the early 60s kind right. of. Right. LA, San Fernando Valley, Inland Empire, South Bay, sure. they're all in there. Um, oh, that's fantastic. Really, really amazing. It's kind of like reading Thomas Pynchon's last book, which was kind of a, a noir novel. The, right now, the name of it escapes me. Yeah, he I know, wrote I know a, what you're a talking about. A noir novel about a, with a made-up uh, beach town, mm, but it's mm. basically sort of like South Bay or could have been Playa del Rey San or Pedro somewhere or like that. It doesn't seem like it's as far south as oh. Pedro. Um but also all these old markets and all these places right. are, are mentioned. Right. I couldn't believe it. And Ry Cooter's book has elements of that. He's it's also it. just good, good stories and, and pretty damn good writing. Well, I'm gonna. I have to. I have to read it. You know, Scott actually got it for City me. City Lights books. Yeah, Scott got it for me, like on the Kindle thing. But I couldn't figure out how to download. Oh, that's it. right. I mentioned it to him. He yeah. said immediately he was gonna get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't. You oh, know, I, that's right. My mom was a huge like she came up in the whole Greenwich Village father too whole Greenwich Village like folk scene you oh, know man. so when we ended up out here she her whole music thing was like you know we'd go she'd take me to Oakland and we would see Lightning Hopkins Sonny Terry Brownie McGee John Lee Hooker I mean that was the kind of stuff that she was taking me to wow. and and then she said well you know you might really like this guy because it was in her opinion her music was too kind of like pure and deep for me but maybe I would like Ry Cooter because it was more urbane and it was produced and it had drums set on it and right, things right. that a 14 year old kid would like and of course she was right and I immediately <laughs> went crazy I got all these Ry Cooter friends and my friend Tom Ginsberg and I we became these bizarre like 14 15 year old kids the only two kids who would be going to like the old Waldorf and all of these the Keystone Berkeley to see Ry Cooter and David Lindley also. We would go to see David Lindley all the time. So, And to this day, I, say, I get everything they, they put out. And actually, I think Ry Cooter's last record he put out, Election Special, is like one of the best he's ever put out. And I've heard this, I keep forgetting. It's, it's fantastic. He got really prolific all of a sudden. It's fantastic. His writing is like off the charts, great, topical wow. stuff, just killing it. And his playing and singing are like top. Form, I think the know. last record of his I heard was My Name is... Uh, Buddy. Uh, Buddy. And that's a good one. It's in the same kind of vein as that, you know. That's got some great songs. But no, wait, there was one after that. What's, what was the one after Chavez, that? Chavez, Ravine, or Pull no, Up Some Dust. That. Pull Up Some Dust. No, I, I haven't heard that one. That's really good, too. Um, yeah, he's, he's kicking Chavez, Ravine has one of my favorite songs of all time on it. It doesn't even have guitar. It's the one that uh, his son's girlfriend sings in Spanish about the UFOs. It's just oh, like a drum wow. machine, a keyboard... It's incredible. It's my driving song. Oh, that's, I'm going to have to get that because really, that's but... the one I don't I don't have. You know, oh, it's it's very uneven, but I, it's sort of the nature of it because it's so all over the place. Right. It's it's brilliant. I that's think. cool. I mean, we, we were kind of blown away when we, I, I was in the uh, car with Scott on a tour listening to that election special. And we were like, this has got to be Jim Keltner, man. It's got that vibe. You know, it's, these drums are killing. This is so happening. And it's his son. Yeah. I was like, wow, man, this cat is great. You mm -hmm. know. 
Yeah, he had a really band that trip. never really took off in L.A., and it seems like he just kind of gave up or something. He huh. just decided to play with Dad or hang out or whatever. Yeah. He, he ended up marrying that lady who sings on that, that song. Good for him. UFO song. I can't remember the title. Good for him, man. Yeah, man. The grind. Southern California grind. lower. Yeah, but I mean, that was a whole other people don't understand. I mean, you know, me being from the Bay Area, you know, that you have this kind of built-in L.A. hatred kind of thing, oh, yeah. which I really don't have, but... Well, back in those days, it was palpable. You it could, was it pretty was intense. Really intense. It was really intense. But the thing that people don't understand is that, especially today, the idea of a place like L.A. or the Bay Area as not just a city that would have a culture... These were cities that, because there was enough different socioeconomic strata could exist and there could be movement between them, you would not just have a culture, you would have multiple cultures existing in this really side-by-side -side and flowing one from the other. Definitely. And then you would have all of this incredible music coming out of these places, which, I mean, this is a, just a refrain that I always go back and forth to all the time. You, you don't have that in the, in the big cities anymore because... It seems like every big city moment feels like there's some corporate protocol attached to it and there can be no spontaneous cultural interaction because everything is underwritten and you need to have a few more zeros at the end of your yearly take-home pay mm -hmm. to even be a part of it, you know? I think there's probably a, a very cool uh, Spanish language underground in Southern California still that isn't mm. corporate. Um, but I'm like right now. I'm just I'm just catching up to all the country and western music that happened in Southern California mm. in the in the 50s and 60s. You're talking Bakersfield or even no, even even south of Bakersfield, like uh, uh, like Inland Empire and hmm. uh, um, oh god, where are all these guys? A lot of it's Orange County. Really? Yeah, because like like Corona in the Inland Empire, um, Fullerton, where uh -huh. uh, where Fender was, right. or maybe still has some kind of factory. Right around there was where all these dudes that played like double neck Moserites, like Joe Mafis and oh, get out all of these here. guys, They're and had a TV there? show that was on every week of all like Southern California country. This is where the Collins kids get out of here. I had that record, the Collins. No all, way, well, it's know, from uh, there. Uh, 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 Larry Collins was like ripping on guitar when he was nine. Yeah. And Joe Mapis was his teacher. Okay. And you, you got to go on YouTube and check this stuff out. I'm going to check it wicked out. Wicked cool. And then, uh, you know, my folks would never, ever be interested in that. The right. whole thing was like, we do not, we're not into hillbilly music. Gotcha. The culture. You know? Exactly. So we're going to so stay away from that. And had from any, that. It had no appeal to me at all when I was younger. Right. And also hippies <clears> were. Not in the, so much in the country except for the Flying Burrito Brothers or whatever because of the, the politics. Right? right, right. So so I was all like, uh, you know, like, Ogie from Muskogee, fuck that asshole. Yeah, know? right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so couldn't get into Merle, couldn't get into any of this stuff. Yeah. Well, now I've, I've uh, through this guy, uh, well, there's just various people, my friend Woody, is really into this stuff. John Woodland, he's my guitar mm -hmm. repair dude and whatever. The, he's a, kind of a scholar, really. Right, so he knows through all him, that and then, stuff. And Deke Dickerson has this book. Uh, I've heard of him. The Strat in the Attic. He's the, like, I think he's the Helicaster guy. Okay. But he's a guitar, renowned guitar collector. And, Got you. Uh, really interesting dude. Sort of an e somebody I was in contact with in email. But... Uh, uh, 
Um, he's glad you're here. Oh. Um, um, so I started checking this stuff out more seriously because yeah. I only heard of some of these guys. I hadn't heard of, like, he mentions all these obscure guys right. in this book. So I'm kind of following a little of that trail yeah. right now. That's all yeah. Southern California. Yeah. And uh, certainly nothing that the, the Bay Area would have been interested in anyway back then because it would have been too hickish or something, you know. Yeah, I most, I mean, most likely the Bay Area was interesting. I mean, when I was a kid, I moved here in 75, and I remember being in school and having a band just come and play at the school. Oh, yeah. Duke Ellington came and played at the, uh, not the high, at the, at the uh, elementary school. Whoa. And um, yeah, so, no, his well, reading band Gary Burton's. I just came. started Gary Burton's autobiography. Oh, okay. And he talks about bands that would come through and play all kinds yeah. of school events and yeah. stuff. My they, favorite one being Jeff Gautier telling me that that uh, a late edition, last edition, I would imagine, of the Velvet Underground played at Beverly Hills High School lunch hour during a, during Drug Awareness Week. Oh wow! <laughs> Wow, someone had a great sense of humor, and that someone that was a fix was in, so to speak. No yeah, pun intended. Yeah. Oh my God, no, but I oh, remember so you saw seeing this it. stuff at school. I saw them, or just you in know, parks and stuff. And in the park, you know, Tower of Power played in the park. No, I believe in that. Provo Park. They played there, um, and you know, there were just there was music everywhere all the time. Everybody played music. Music was. Well, that's the true in the West, in the East Village too. Yeah, I mean, for you know, for a long time, and even in fact, not in West LA so much, but unless you know, like my most exciting first sonic moment was, uh, besides hearing my friend's snare drum in elementary school, was hearing a band play on a flatbed truck in a parking lot in front of yeah. a supermarket, and the guys were playing instrumental versions of. In a God of the Vita or Hits of the Day. They didn't have a singer and they were sponsored by a music store. And they're playing oh, through like so showman cool. amps and stuff. They like never so heard cool. a big amp before. And these guys had coily chords and big that's amps. Awesome. And I was so excited. Coily chords. Sound. I remember the coily they're chords. Back. Yeah, they're back. Oh, that's hilarious. They're totally back. You know, it's I one of my first experiences with like the when you know kind of it's a calling or it, there's just something you can't escape it, you're screwed basically. Was my mom was a big uh, like East Bay Berkeley political activist. You know, they'd have all the crazy meetings in the, the living room. And because wow. she was a political activist, the living room would change every year because we would be forced to move somewhere else, you oh, know? Um, and also just because of the money, you know? Right. But one of the things she was working on was there was a, there was a guy who was, was a part of, it wasn't the Black Panthers, but it was kind of a, it was a later iteration of it, like a 1980 mm. version of it. Oh. And um, he was he was falsely imprisoned, you know. It was bad. And they, they actually, his name was Michael Zinzoon. I remember that because I still have the piece of paper. Because John Lee Hooker played a benefit for them in a warehouse in East Oakland. And my mom took me. She's like, well, we're going to, you have to come. I, I, you know, I can't, you know. Yeah, I need someone to help me put the chairs out and to do this and all this stuff. So, you know, I went there wow, and, what an uh, upbringing. and John Lee Hooker was, was playing. But before he even came out, he had a band with like a bass player and, and um, a drummer and a rhythm guitar player. Because I remember what they were wearing. You know how vivid that can be? I remember sure. what they were wearing. And I remember like the Fender bass and the... the um, you know the tuners, yeah, like yeah. how the lights would hit those big tuners, mm. and the, and the the 
the sunburst, like all these incredible right. things. And then the organist, he had on like he had like an afro hair doing one of those big hats on. And I remember it specifically because I remember watching his feet move. And I don't know whether the bass player was playing while he was playing, but he was like moving his feet. And so they did like a couple tunes before John Lee Hooker came out. And I remember they got into one of those, and it was just one of those nasty shuffles. And and I immediately was transfixed as an organ player because he was the real deal, this guy. He might be some known guy that I don't even remember his name, but he started playing all that pardon me, all that shit, and it was incredible. It's all that stuff, like with the chords and all the lines, and he got up to this real soulful thing, and he was just playing just these heavy runs and all this stuff, and I was like near the Leslie speaker, and it was too much for me, and I fainted. I <laughs> fell over. You can ask my mom. I fell over into the chairs. I knocked the chairs over, and, and it was just like, okay, I think that this is this music thing is for me, you know. Wow. But I just thought that oh when you God. told me about your friend hitting I the can... snare drum and the band playing. Oh, yeah. I just remember, like, going over to this guy. I wrote about it in our, um, John, one of John Zorn's Arcana books. I wrote about sound, my love of sound, and the, this experience of this guy, Pat Pyle. He was a great drummer in elementary school. Right. He had a snare drum, was taking snare lessons, and he said, come over to my house after school. Because he found, you know, we're really into music, and not a lot of the kids were into music at that time. This is like 67, 66. And uh, uh, we went over after school to his house, and he pulled out like a rudiment book or something, uh -huh. and played some snare exercises. And I just remember my, my brother and me, we, we just couldn't stop. Our faces hurt from grinning, you know, <laughs> just like... You it's know, magic. So incredible. Just yeah, it's so magic. blown away. It's magic. And then we started kind of jamming at his house. And I didn't know how to play anything. But my brother wanted to learn to play drums. And Pat was super generous. would let yeah. Alex play his drum set anytime. And we'd go over on the weekends and they'd just play. They'd trade off playing along with Rolling Stones right, records. Right. Oh, that's they'd awesome. turn the stereo all the way up and play along with Charlie Watts. <laughs> But I didn't know how to play anything. But his uncle had a had a like a Cruccinelli bass or something, and a little Crown solid state combo amp right, or something right. like that, with the sparkle grill and oh nice. And I just remember plugging that thing in and just like sliding up and down on it, just like oh while they were God. playing beats. Oh, that's fantastic! And that was it, man. I just yeah. knew that that this was that this is leading me where I want to go. It was it. It was the magic and all the. the yeah. It's immediately like boom. Okay, I know. I might only be fourteen years old, but I know one thing for sure. That's yeah. a powerful thing. Yeah. Then when you start learning and you start practicing, you're like, well, wait a minute. Unlike school, <laughs> when I do this, I actually. I, when I put my mind to this and I work at it, I actually get way more out of it than I'm getting out of school. And then that's, oh, where, that's even... where the trouble starts. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was so undisciplined, though. I never even learned anything normal for years. I played everything with two fingers. <laughs> my dad showed me an E chord because oh, he was taking folk night, night classes of folk guitar. Oh, fantastic. So he showed me an E chord, and that was when like the, the gates of heaven opened yeah. up. I was like, oh, yeah. my God. So I had a song that was just an E chord. Was, right. Oh, know, that's awesome. Cause I just and I had a fuzz box, so and it's a little tiny blue chip stamp melody amplifier, which I eventually blew up from yeah. turning it all the way up and putting a fuzz all the way. So up. that's where it happened. That's where your whole thing with Sonic, because you know, I, I people are always like, you know, who don't know about you, but now a lot of people know about you, which is as it should be. But you know, a lot of people, I, well, who you know, 
I said, well, you know, here, check these records out and, and blah, 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 blah. And you know what a drag it is to have to explain music to people yeah, and you have to go. And what I always say is, well, well, he's like a real, really good guitar player. You know, like if you, if you think about people like Bill Frizzell or John Schofield and, you know, people that have used sound in a way, but it's still sonically, it's, it's more of a vehicle for what they would do without the yeah. sound, okay. Right. I said, well, you take Nels takes it. He's a he's a one of the guys in that league of guitar player that takes that to the next that lets go of the parachute and just takes the sonic thing as its own statement well, in yeah, and of itself. It's, it's and you're really the guy that has made a because uh, I started messing around with effects things like 10 years ago mess with them and then I heard some records and I saw when I played with you and I saw you I was like okay I don't need to do this anymore that was really cool <laughs> but well, it's, I never but, had a desire to do that as the thing you know and it came up right. by accident well and that's why it is were, a thing except for Hendrix who I thought was a shaman or something I thought he was magic so right. nobody could try to play like that right and that, right and that's why I picked up guitar seriously I decided I was going to really do this when I heard Jimi Hendrix but but then I decided that he was so flamboyant, and I had no desire to be flamboyant. I wanted to be—I just wanted to play guitar and and be musical, right, and not right. noticed really. Yeah, yeah, you know what sure, I mean? sure, of course. Uh, wore really drab clothes, and like you know what I mean. And so Dwayne Allman was my guy for a really right. long time, and Dwayne and these kind of guys like Paul Kossoff from Free and. Jan Ackerman with Focus and stuff, who oh, played wow. like straight into the amp, really loud or whatever. Right. But, and then I started getting into Steve Howe, and I thought, well, he has all this stuff going on, but that's not my thing. Right. But then uh, some but equipment still good got left in my there. room. You right. Know, the Echoplex of Vinnie's, and, and I, so I started pulling out the drawers. Do I still have that new fuzz? And I started, and I realized that I had an ability to use this stuff, yeah. and I really enjoyed it. So that's yeah. kind of what started me. But in the 80s, I almost gave up music because I couldn't reconcile this desire to you know, rock versus jazz, electric versus acoustic, oh, you know, yeah, and, I, yeah. and I was, you know, why even bother to reconcile it, you know, but I had to somehow, right, I was like right. getting, so I have a dichotomous yeah, Western yeah. mind, so. Um, it's also the so guitar's, it torment. Yeah, it's also the guitar's position, right? I mean, it's like, it it's is. It's the beauty of the guitar, it's the, ultimately. It's the, yeah, it's when you accept but, that thing, yeah. the folk instrument and the ignorance of it and, how it's everyone's way to tell a story that everyone can understand yeah, the, and which is the thing that gets you booted out. I'm so lucky that I play guitar and not trombone because <laughs> man I'd be so screwed I wouldn't I would be the shittiest trombone player because I just don't have the discipline to learn an instrument like that oh I don't know about that but you know you, you have to I mean those guys are like athletes you know they really can't spend more than a day away from the instrument right. they're they're in trouble you know? right. but the stuff that you've done with like i said like letting go of the parachute kind of thing which is like corny est like kind of way of saying it but it's basically well, what we're all trying to do ultimately in some way shape or form of evolving I just it. like sound i mean the thing is that just if you play with somebody else especially who's kind of in that zone, then it's just like playing in the sandbox to me it's the most natural thing in the world yeah, yeah. and it's very freeing when it, and when it's exciting, you know, it comes together and things happen and it seems almost dramatic or, or moving in some way. Then you just feel like you're really on to something yeah, yeah. and you can't go back. 
But yeah. to this day, people th- are surprised and they find out I play elect- uh, play acoustic guitar. Right. Of like, course. oh, you play acoustic? Yeah. Like, like, it's like... Well, in the 80s, I played mostly acoustic, actually. I mean, in L.A. Yeah. You know, I mean, out in the world, I probably played more electric because that was what the gig was. Sure, sure. But, but yeah, I mean, it's like, it's funny about that stuff. But, man, I wish I'd heard all those gigs back then. I couldn't, we couldn't get to the gigs. Nobody would take us, you know. You were too young and it I was did, too far. I, in, when I was 16, I did get to see the Allman Brothers with Dwayne. And he died a month later. Whoa. Well, yeah. that's great. So that was a seminal, yeah. that was a really happening experience. I saw the birds in Central Park in 68. Oh, Everyone man. knows they're a crap live band, but of course, in my memory, they were gods. They were incredible, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And what's that? Roger McGuinn didn't spend every, like, two strums of that 12 string and it's out of tune. It's, it's two the, strums. Oh, yeah. That's all it takes, well, they, you know? They were really uh, obviously about to kick David Crosby out of the band because he was insufferable on stage, talking <laughs> constantly and just really a jerk. And McGuinn was just glowering. You know, wow. From, he was like, but looking at him while he's talking, you can just wow. feel the tension. As a 12-year-old, I could feel it. Or I might have been 13, actually. But anyway, Shoot. not too many shows. Greg Cohen went to them all. He did, he yeah. He saw all of them. Yeah, Bobby Previtt, too. Bobby Previtt tells me stories about... Oh, yeah. Buffalo. Having, yeah. yeah. Buffalo. He and, he and Elliot Sharp are the Buffalo guys. Yep. And older, so, they, so Elliot, too, has seen a lot of serious, serious shows and also when he plays blues rock guitar elliot he can play it's kind of like, like that it's that like style. wayne kramer and, and my friend g stinson who grew up uh he's from oklahoma but but you know as a young adult an adult was in chicago mm-hmm. he has that thing when he starts to play blues rock guitar that you don't hear now right it's just this way yeah. of playing where they were getting it right from listening to exactly the blues guys, you know? and you know previt is exactly the same way like when you play any type of a rock groove with him it is like, I mean, the word authentic comes to mind, like mm. you're saying, because he got it from the source. Right. And man, there's just certain things that he does that someone my age, I'm only like 15 years younger than him, just can't do. Mm. They just don't have, it's not part of their reality because yeah, that's it's twice so removed. You know, you're not going to hear that feel or that sound. It's not... Um, well, it's I don't even have. I have no authenticity. That's the what? thing. It's like I have like <laughs> fragments of all these things. And then the funny thing is, as I've gotten older, uh, now it's kind of hard because I have this nerve pinch I'm coming back from where I am. I can my left hand doesn't work like it used what? to. Yeah, we'll talk about that some oh. other time. But so bending notes is is well, I also have a pretty heavy setup. But it, but bending notes is kind of hard for me now. But yeah. But I started playing much more like Hendrix sometimes now uh-huh. because it just it's in my head and I can just do it. Yeah, of know? course, of course. But, but but I never was striving for that before. Yeah. It was sacrilege to me. Yeah. You know. <laughs> but you know the thing the thing is is like when you know you think about somebody like Bill Frizzell. And people will begrudge him his success. I was just like, man, really? if it was, yeah, if it was 30 years, you know, like jazzy kind of guys, jazzer guys, you know, it's like, man, if it was 30 years ago. He's so well studied in that Yeah, world. He oh, just yeah. Has a broader palette than a straight ahead. Dude. Oh, totally, yeah. But, it, but it's, it's just like the, the thing you, you talk about not being authentic, but I think that the authenticity is struggling to have your voice be. Well, that I mean, thing. and that's everyone's authenticity. And this is right? starting to get political because I actually am in no position to defend or, or uh, in any way expound on the jazz tradition. Right. But right. once it stops becoming a living tradition, 
what the hell is it? It's That's like classical music, and now yeah. it's archival. Yeah. Now we just have to yeah. recreate instead right. of create. Exactly. So it's like, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. bless the creators. I mean, that's the only way the music gets pushed forward. I totally, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, and I think it's all, it's not just what you want to call jazz. It's, it's, I mean, I was talking to Matt Chamberlain, and he, you know, I mean, he does all the, the, the gigs, you know, like the recording gigs. And I mean, he's a brilliant improviser, but he's not coming from like a jazz world. I mean, but incredible improviser, like blew my mind, you know, playing, playing a gig with him. But he was telling me, you know, it's even in the, the, the kids who are putting out music now, they're recreating, but they don't call it recreating. They call it referencing. Uh, and the whole thing they want to do is they want to be, some group wants to be the first one to use the same kind of synthesizer vibe that Joy Division used oh, on a specific yeah. record. Yeah, or or like true. some group wants to get exactly like the first Gang of Four record, stuff like that. And and I feel the same way about that. I mean, it's not like I'm a huge Gang of Four fan or I really even know that much about them. But yeah. when I, I listen... <laughs> Look, when I listen to Gang of Four, and when I listen to the band that's trying to be Gang of Four, it's just like, there's just no comparison. Yeah, how many and, Joy Division bands are there now? It's like, we don't need any more yeah. Joy Divisions or New Orders at this point. You know, no, but you, Cure, you, well, you know what I'm saying. It's like, and, and saying. it's like my wife digs the Cure. She likes the Cure. It's not something I would have, but you put it on, I was like, wow, man. These are really good songs. Yeah. Like, what is going on? He's but, a really underrated guitar player, too, Robert Smith, in my opinion. He plays the jangly stuff on the on that, right? He so, does yeah. all kinds of stuff. I mean, he doesn't do much guitar playing anymore. He does supportive work, and he's singing. But like, he was momentarily in Susie and the Banshees on this record called Hyena, and... and uh, did some really cool stuff, you know, following in the in the footsteps of John McGough, who was, I right. think, the architect of goth guitar. Oh, wow. You know, arpeggiated I know nothing about that. I know nothing about that. You have to school me, because I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you could really, if it's that important. Oh, <laughs> well, it's For all me, important. It you never know. You never know. But I think that, you know, because the whole jazz thing is, is such a hot-button topic, and people sink so much money into... Um, institutions that either well, are now, teaching yeah. quote, it or they're preserving it one right. way or the other. Right. And for me personally, I mean, dude, when you play the guitar, it's just like automatically you're not really invited unless they need something, <laughs> unless they want a really nasty stripper, they invite the guitar to the party. <laughs> That's kind of how it is. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, yeah. let me show this, this well, guy. You better show up with a hollow body guitar and a no effects whatsoever. Yeah. And that's cool. I mean, that's a sound, you know, but, but, but it's like, not, but the students are. These guys come up to my, to come to my gigs, and they come up to me, and they say, you know, they're uh, asking me questions about this and that. And they tell me that they're not allowed to play a solid body guitar in class. They can't use a volume pedal. That's they can't crazy. Do all this stuff. That's yeah. crazy talk, man. Yeah. I mean, dude, look, go back and listen to Charlie Christian Records. That guitar is is gnarly. Distorted, yeah. gnarly, distorted, and yeah, it has so much. Like a single it. coil pickup, right? And the amps were were really quiet, so they just yeah. turned them up. Listen I mean, to Django when he went electric. Oh, totally. Some of my favorite guitar. Oh, that's playing. awesome. The stuff with Duke Ellington. So with that. great. Oh, that's fantastic. It's so great, and the sound is pretty gnarly. Rush. It's gnarly, man. Rush. And look at look at uh, the Grant. Some of the Grant Green stuff, man. The thing that's so cool about that is it's like he's using P ninety pickups, and it's on right. the verge well, of. Well, that's, uh, that's what. That's uh, what. Django had he had that uh, what is the it's like a three thirty, is that like, right? Is that what like that a, was? It's like the big no cutaway, huh? One or two P nineties, 
Wow. Black. Yeah. P90s. Uh, yeah, it was their top of the line or something at that yeah. point or something. Before the, obviously before humbuckers, you know, and everything yeah. changed. But the beauty, I think the beauty about guitar is that you don't, you know, I mean, great. for instance, you know, I was listening to a bunch of Duke Ellington on the plane ride here, listening to some Louis Armstrong. And the, the, the vernacular in that and the power of that, the being the horn and how the bass, acoustic bass and piano and drums interact, all of this stuff, it's so perfect for that world. It's, right. it's, and it really gets you. It's like, wow, this is powerful. You can't deny it. But the thing that, you all, that I feel like about the guitar that you can't deny is that it can make a contribution to that universe, and it has, but that's just one tiny little yeah. subtext of, it's a footnote, really. The guitar is this crazy-ass folk instrument that yeah. has this vernacular that, I mean, you can even just say, like, uh, the Ventures, Dick Dale, uh, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That's one guitar vernacular. Right. You know, Lightning Hopkins is another. Right. Uh, Lonnie Mack is another. Um, Andre Segovia is another. Right. You know what I mean? It's like you have all this guitar vernacular because it's everybody's instrument. And I think that that's the problem. It's like the way I liken it to is like you come up and you have all these crazy freaky friends at school and then you go, you start being interested in a girl and that girl is jazz. And the girl <laughs> makes it clear that she thinks your freaky friends have got to go. Yeah, yeah. So you go hang out with her, right. and you no longer have your freaky friends anymore. And thankfully, well, that's, that's... they never go away, the freaky friends. Because guitar vernacular, that's how right. we learn. We don't learn reading notes. Yeah, we yeah. learn, like, for the magic. It's still you know? really, really hard to read for me and play because I, I look at my hand, you know. So mm. it's like I'm just doing this all the time. I can't just stare and play. Yeah. I can't do it. So I mean, I think the. By reading... the way, my brother and I in elementary school, going into junior high school, lost all our friends because of rock and roll. Really? And then we went into high school, <laughs> we lost all of our friends because of jazz and improvised music <laughs> and frog rock. So where were you going to high school? Like Brigham Young uni, High or something? Uni High. Oh, no, man. they were all just still into rock. Everyone wanted to stay with rock and follow oh. the Grateful Dead around. Oh, got you, got you. Like hippie we kind were of already, thing. Yeah, and they all, it was a little too late for that, but 71 when we went into high school. And I was still like really into, you know, Almond Brothers and whatever, but, but basically I'd heard, by that time I'd heard John Coltrane. Right. Right then, at 71. Oh, that's cool. And then my brother just jumped right off into Eric Tolfi and Art Ensemble, and, and we got into yeah. Miles and weather, Early Weather Report, and we were never the same, and then really just didn't yeah. have anything in common with our friends anymore. I mean, that's powerful stuff. You know, I mean, I remember my friend Dave Ellis, a great tenor player from this area. Um, he, that at the time, I was just really into, um, like I was telling you, like Ry Cooter and, and trying to figure out like Guitar Slim and, um, you know, Ronnie Reverend Mack. Gary Davis. Re oh, Reverend Gary Davis. That, that was my great mom's example. guy. Oh, I didn't yeah. like any of that stuff because it was acoustic right. and it was old people's music. Right. That's right. what I thought it was. Right. Old people's music. I, it was I wanted played by old people. Yeah, and I wanted to hear and you know like Mississippi I, Fred McDowell. You know, that was that's her stuff. She yeah. knew some of those guys. You know, like I met those guys when I was a little kid. I saw them play like in the living room. Lonnie Johnson know? is one of my big guys. Oh, Lonnie Johnson is like one of the so, all time. Because he's got that swing blues combo thing going. You heard yeah. those Lonnie Johnson Eddie Lang duos, right? Yeah, yeah. That stuff is ridiculous. That's a record that Scott grandfather's on that right, right. The pioneers the of jazz guitar yeah it's crazy 
But um, shoot, I lost my train of thought. Oh, shit, you were talking about, uh, uh, I'm sorry I mentioned Reverend Gary Davis. Don't but you were saying old. you were the guy into Ry Cooter and into all this other stuff, and then your friends obviously must have been into something else because we were talking about you lose your friends. Yeah, to, yeah. Uh, well, no, oh, it was because Dave Ellis, he... Oh, Dave Ellis. He was, because he was like my good friend from when we were we were little, you know, and he was like a, a prodigy. Like when he was like 14, he was playing gigs like and just shaming adults. In, in a jazz That's context. Like yeah, I mean, totally, just like that, like ridiculous, you know, saxophone, like huge sound, like everything, just like, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and but he was really into, because he had already been through the whole bebop thing and all, he, he was like 15, 16, he just wasn't into that anymore. So he was into fusion. And so he brought me over to his house and he was like, dude, you got it. Because that's how we're always, dude, right, dude. You know, he's like, dude, you've got to hear this uh, Weather Report record. And you've got to hear this L.A. Sax record, I remember. And you've got to hear this spot. The other, like these kind of fusion records. And and my impression, because I had never like really heard jazz except for like what they played at school, the lab band, which to me was like, I was always embarrassed when I heard it. Because it was always just like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh no, you're not again. You know, what's going on here? And that band was heavy. It was like him and Josh Redman, you know. But I was like, Ben Ball, this guy, Ben Ball, who was an unbelievable uh, uh, player. But he was like, man, this is like, check this. You know, I said, I want to, you know, show me some jazz. And so he played me that stuff. And it was two years before I ever like even went into the jazz section of the library. Because I was like, I remember thinking I was very nice. But I was like, if this is jazz, I never want to hear jazz again. <laughs> like, please, I never, ever, ever want to hear jazz again, you know. Um, but luckily, I, I explored the Berkeley Public Library, and I got you know, like right. you were saying, the Eric Dolphy and Joe Pass records. I got very bizarre stuff because I was just trying to figure. Well, that's it what out. we were listening to. I had Joe Pass records. I was like really bummed out because most of my favorite jazz records didn't have guitar on them. Right, right. So I was like, damn. What, of course where, they did. Where does the guitar fit into this world? Yeah, yeah. And then so I started seeking out this stuff, realizing that some of the guitar stuff wasn't my favorite music. Right. But it was good guitar playing. Like Tal Farlow. So was, yeah, and, and listening sure. to you know whatever George Barnes and you know Chuck Wayne and Joe Puma duo. And cool. This cool. Kind of I get stuff. it. Yeah. Um, I saw Joe Pass and Harrells play duo many times. Wow. And they were they were that was real chemistry. Yeah, yeah. And two guys really really coming out of the old school. But yeah, but, and tunes. But, they played tunes. Pushing that it. was their thing. They yeah. were just pushing each other. Yeah. But but. Uh, uh, yeah, I didn't know what the hell to do with the guitar. It was, so most of my favorite records didn't have guitar at that point. So uh, Well, and that's everybody, though. Every guitar player is like, okay, great. This is basically like a sax-centric thing. So you basically have this one shortstop on every team, and you have a million catchers that want to be shortstop. And it's a bitch to play shortstop with a catcher's physique. And that's essentially <laughs> what guitar players are to trying to be in the oh, jazz that's world. Hilarious. You know what I mean? Don't well, you think then I so? found Well, then I found Jim Hall. And that's when I started yeah. to realize that there were actual guitar artist improvisers right. um, who weren't just doing Charlie Christian or weren't just doing, you know... Uh, something so familiar right you know? right now when i listen to joe pass i go like i kind of know oh he's going to play that lick now you right know? the time it was listening to play on virtuoso right i just thought this was impossible like right. how could anyone play this you know yeah it was absolute mystery 
Um, I still can't do it, but I know that he's basically has these things that he yeah, likes yeah. to do, kind of like Dexter Gordon or something. Exactly. Like, yeah. Here comes turnaround number three. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But but still masterful. But Jim, you know, unpredictable. He's like yeah. he was like Jimmy Rolls, and I became obsessed with Jimmy Rolls later in life. How Jimmy, you listen to him play piano. And he's just not playing what he knows all the time. Just right. when he's comping, it sounds so amazing to me. So I just became fascinated. I'm gonna by have these to guys. listen more Jimmy Roll. Jimmy's incredible. There's a great solo piano record of him playing Ellington Strayhorn stuff. I'm gonna get um, But my favorite, one of my favorite Jimmy Rolls moments, and I, I really kind of collect his records at this point, and I was friendly with him too. He was an interesting guy. Um, uh, found out recently that his student in the '80s for four years was Diana Krall. Get out of here. Wow. She moved to LA to study with them. Wow. And she had, I, I talked with her recently. She had insane Jimmy Rolls stories. Wow. But, but anyway. Oh, that's uh, great. Uh, there's a record of Zoot Sims, two records. There was one date that they turned into two records. The, one of them's called If I'm Lucky and the other one's called Warm Tenor. And it's it's a quartet, Zoot, and I love those those kind of like cool Getz and Zoot and all those sure, dudes. Sure, sure. But those guys uh, weren't like the cool jazz guys. to me. Yeah, those I guys like were, those guys yeah, a lot. The lyrical. I like the, yeah. the, that. And I love Paul Desmond. And I love oh, man. Cool. Paul Desmond is my dude. I will defend him like hardcore. Incredible. Uh, but anyway, the record is Zoot, Jimmy... Uh, George Mraz and some drummer named Mousy Alexander. Probably it was like a name. Some, it, it was probably like a, one of those I don't fake know. names. I think it really is his uh, some really? real guy. It's like he basically just plays time. I don't think he even plays fills. Wow. And uh, uh, some old school dude. You know, I don't know who he is. But, oh, that's great. But the records are they're gorgeous. They're just straight ahead jazz dates with just that extra little yeah. fabulousness. Yeah. Here's Ben. I'm under if he's about to pick me up. Here we can turn it off. Ben!